Spring has arrived and nature is being born again, so can we get some comic book characters to be reborn as well? Revamps, coming up today on The Byword. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 147 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave. I'm here with my buddy Chris. And in this week's episode, to celebrate spring and the rebirth of nature, we are going to have our own little rebirth of some characters that we think are in desperate need of a revamp. But before we get to that particular big talk, it's as always time for... All right, Chris, what's good? Well, I don't know if it's good, but it just is the state of gaming as it is right now. E3 has been officially canceled, uh, and this might be more than likely the final nail in the coffin. So, um, you know, the big game developers, Nintendo, Sony, Microsoft, have kind of gone their separate ways and and made their own events. Um, And so the need for something like E3... Uh, kind of went the way of the dodo, to borrow one of your phrases. Um, It was set to be the first multi-day in-person conference in L.A. for the first time since 2019. I think, uh, of course, the pandemic played a factor, um, and and companies kind of reinvented themselves. So the the E3 organizers, Reed Pop and Entertainment Software Association, have now announced its cancellation. And Kyle Marsden Kish of Reed Pop said, quote, This was a difficult decision because of all the effort we and our partners put toward making this event happen, but we had to do what's right for the industry and what's right for E3. We appreciate and understand that interested companies wouldn't have playable demos ready and that resourcing challenges made being at E3 this summer an obstacle they couldn't overcome, end quote. Um, If memory serves, I think we did an entire episode on the previous E3 event uh, that was mostly virtual. And and it's just an interesting kind of sign of the times of how companies and industries have reinvented themselves in the aftermath of a worldwide pandemic um, that we're still seeing, you know, signs of um, I, I was never like a real big, like E3 person, but it is interesting to see kind of how things shift and how things change over time. Uh, Dave, what are your thoughts on this? I'm not really sure how to take this one. Um, I understand that E3 has been on decline for a while. Okay. So, so it, it makes sense um, as, you know, more and more companies have slowly backed away from the event um, and moved predominantly, I feel, to these, um, you know, these online like Nintendo Direct style presentations. And on the one hand, I understand that um, it's actually, uh, you know, kind of cool. Uh, they're cutting out the middleman, you know, they are uh, directly communicating with fans. They don't have to wait for a specific time of the year to dump a whole bunch of announcements. Uh, they can uh, kind of um, you know, do it on their own schedule and at their own time. All understood. However, I think there's something special about having an in-person event like that where you can go uh, see presentations, you know, get hands-on with some demos for the first time. I think, uh, you know, this is basically in a lot of ways like comic-con for 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 tech people you know 
And so seeing that go away, I think there's a certain amount of sadness that that comes along with that. I think there's something special when you're, you know, in a crowd at, at E3 and you get to see uh, the, the the new trailer for the new Zelda game in a, in a crowd of fans for the first time and kind of feed off the electricity, you know, of the room and the people. Um, and that's not quite there when you have uh, these online presentations. Now the closest you get to that feeling is when you watch like the 8 billion reaction videos that are posted on YouTube afterwards, right? Um, so I'm, I'm, I always kind of try to imagine what would it be like if they don't do any, you know, in-person comic book conventions anymore and everything is basically, um, you know, that DC online event that they, that they did. What was that called again? A dome or something? Fandom, right? Imagine if fandom was the only thing we had and you can't actually go out there and, you know, meet, meet creators. And, you know, I, I, I think that the we're diminishing the communal experience a little bit by doing that. I understand from a logistical standpoint, it makes sense. I just feel like it's just another thing that we're losing in, in the endless march of, of, you know, tech moving forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think this, I don't know that this is necessarily a sign of things to come because I think the communal aspect, you think of, you know, like cosplayers and being able to meet uh, meet and greet with celebrities and actors and and everyone. I think that still um, is enough to kind of continue on with like comic cons and stuff. But when it comes to like news based things like this and like reveals, like the trailerification of you know entertainment media when it comes to like you know during the Super Bowl or doing during the NBA Finals, they drop a trailer for a movie or they drop a trailers for this and trailers for that i think those those things have kind of lost their luster um but as far as like in-person actual conventions of of comic-con and and the ilk and, and those ilk i think those will will persist um the troubling thing for me though is uh you know the loss of the communal aspect of different corporations kind of coming together at an event like this. And as I said, I'm I'm not, I'm by no means an expert. I kind of, you know, come to gaming in my leisure time. I'm not like super plugged in to things like that. If I see a new game announced, I'm like, cool, I'll play that maybe when it comes, but I'm not like sitting by my phone or device and just waiting for something. Um, But I think the, almost like the territorial arms race that continues to persist in the gaming industry is a little bit upsetting. Um, I'm very happy as, as a Microsoft consumer, as I've detailed numerous times on the show before, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's not troubling to see that everybody's kind of got their own event place. Sony has their own thing. Microsoft has their own thing, Nintendo. So it's, it's, it is a little bit saddening even from like a, a bystanders perspective. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. And I'm not saying that, you know, comic book conventions and the like are going to go the way of the dodo. But can you imagine, for example, um, there's one big DC convention, there's one big Marvel convention, there's a big image convention, like instead of having everything, you know, under one roof, it's it's the same kind of um, fracturing that has been happening. And I know this is, you know, kind of going around to uh, on the topic a little bit on the long, uh, you know, 
taken a long way here, but streaming, you know, everything was sort of in-house at, at Netflix, right? And it was easy to get into the whole streaming thing. It was very accessible for the average consumer. And now it's been fractured over like 10 different streaming services. And it just depends on what you're looking for. Um, and I just, I, I think it's sad if we would see something similar happening with these kinds of events where everybody's going off and doing their own thing. It's just not as accessible anymore for the for the average fan then, you know? Now, speaking of conventions, Dave, uh, we kind of have, at the time of recording, we kind of had dueling conventions and dueling announcements. We've got Megacon in Orlando and C2E2 in Chicago, uh, and your news story comes from one of those. Yeah, it comes from uh, Megacon in Orlando. Um, and I wanted to take a moment to talk about this because I'm going to circle back around to this character in our um, rebirth segment. Uh, so it's been announced that there is a new Batman and Robin series uh, premiering in September as part of the current Dawn of DC um, initiative, I guess we can call it, that's happening at DC Comics right now. And I have absolutely no complaints about Dawn of DC so far. I think a lot of the stuff coming out of that has been really good with, you know, a, a few and far between exceptions that I, you know, have, I'm having some issues with. But uh, the Superman books in particular are a real standout right now. So seeing that one of the people involved in the Superman books, Joshua Williamson, is actually going to be also writing Batman and Robin uh, with artist Simone DeMeo uh, is really, really exciting, actually. Book is set uh, to um, launch in September. Um, and uh, here's the official description of the book. After Batman vs. Robin and Lazarus Planet, Bruce and Damian Wayne are back together again, investigating mysterious new cases and monsters in Gotham in Batman and Robin. Launching this September, Batman and Robin is from writer Joshua Williamson and artist Simone DeMeo, uh, and fans get a first look at the first issue's cover, interior artwork, and design for a Robin-mobile. Um, so, you know, Robin-mobile, bleh, whatever, right? Um, it's not like we've not been there before. In fact, I had to uh, kind of call out uh, comic book resources on social media because they said it's the first ever Robin Mobile. No, Com- not not CBR, not <laughs> CBR misunderstanding something. Which is hilarious, con- yeah, considering <laughs> Tim Tim Drake had you know the Red Bird. He already had his own Robin Mobile, so. Um, you know, that, that was a silly thing. However, uh, if you look at the previews of the interior art in particular, there's a, there's a big energy there that I really appreciate. Um, and there's like this almost neon-infused thing happening in the art. Um, you see a shot from outside Gotham Zoo, and it's just like this really like purpley pink stuff kind of going on. Um, I really think that's a cool look for a Batman book. It's, it's a little different, and I, and I kind of like the, the art vibe already. So I'm excited for this, um, you know, cautiously, uh, because on the on the other hand, I have to admit that one of the things that's never really clicked with me has been the Bruce Wayne, Damian Wayne dynamic. Um, I guess you could say ever since Morrison, who introduced Damian Wayne or this take on, on Damian Wayne, um, kind of departed and moved on. Um, it's been kind of a rough ride for me, at least, when it comes to the Bruce Wayne, Damian Wayne dynamic. I think Damian uh, plays much better as a character off of uh, off of Dick Grayson, and so uh, yes, Bat- yeah. So the Batman and Robin book, where Dick Grayson was Batman and Damian was Robin, is like peak Batman and Robin stuff to me. It's like this perfect inversion of the traditional roles, with Batman being more lighthearted and Robin being this grim, you know, overly violent character. It's just a a really, really cool dynamic. But, you know, what happens when you put 
father and son together and they're very similar personality wise they, they just don't bounce off of each other the same way so i'm interested to see how williamson is going to try to to address that disconnect because i've never quite enjoyed their dynamic um i think Bruce just plays better off of uh, like a Tim Drake or or even a Dick Grayson in flashbacks and stuff than he does off of Damien in that whole Batman and Robin situation. So, you know, here's hoping uh, that uh, they resolve that concern at least. And it's a really strong book because the art is already singing. And I'm pretty excited for this. I'm, I'm, I have a lot of feelings about this one. I love Simone DeMeo's work, um, especially from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers work and uh, the MMPR TMNT crossover first one which reminds me that i need to jump on the second one but i think the art is absolutely uh, breathtaking i love how alive simone de mayo's work is i will say and more on this later um as someone who is of uh you know is biracial uh, damien is looking a little pasty and I'm, I'm not a fan of that so more on, more on that later um but I'm very, very excited about this book because I love Damian Wayne as a character. And as, as you said, I'm, I'm interested to see kind of what they do with this dynamic because uh, the Dick Grayson and Damian Wayne stuff is always comedic gold for me, whether it's Morrison writing it. Uh, Seeley did a great job with it in Nightwing, um, the Rebirth Nightwing uh, as well. Um, and on the same hand, like this whole like DC um, kind of the dawn of DC rebirth under a different name is just another reason that it's so hard for me to jump on. Sometimes I feel like I'm at like the train tracks and like, when do I jump on? When do I jump on? Or like, we're like playing double Dutch and like, do I jump in now? Do I jump in now? Do I jump in now? And and on the one hand, it seems like it's new reader friendly because like, Hey, you can get in right now, but you better do it right now or you're going to miss on something. So I'm, I'm kind of conflicted a little bit on this, but I am excited to see, um, this creative team take take the mantle here. You know, I understand uh, the difficulty in finding a good jumping on place because I constantly have that issue as well with Marvel. Um, Marvel, though, confuses me much further because they're constantly new number number oneing me, uh, even more so than DC. You know, so there's constantly at least there for a while. It felt like every year they were relaunching every one of their books. And like here's a new number one, and I'm like, you know what? Honestly, I always think of that as like it's a new it's a new chapter. It's a new chapter. That's that's how I think of it. Well, yeah, but uh, you know, until they started like more recently putting on like the legacy numbering, it was almost impossible to figure out a reading order. Like uh, you you had to basically live online and like read read all these extensive articles on reading orders, you know. So if, if it would be you know, I think the legacy numbering goes a long way helping with that, but if you're going to constantly relaunch with a new number 1 to get that new number 1 bump, uh, in sales, you have to, for long-time readers, create some kind of through line that makes it easy to navigate from book to book. And that's sort of the biggest problem I see with constant relaunches is, you know, they're not technically really relaunches. Like you said, they're new chapters, right? So if you want to understand stuff that came before, you are going to have to navigate that maze. Um, so that, I think, is just a common problem at both publishers to a certain extent. But I like these kinds of initiatives, you know, like Rebirth or Dawn of DC, where every couple of years they're like, okay, we're going to, we're gonna, you know, start some new stuff. And now is a really good time to jump on. I think this is a really good time to jump on. And I think you've had some success getting into the Superman stuff, right? Well, I read the first issue of the Williamson and Campbell, and I deeply, deeply enjoyed it. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading issue two. 
It's really good, yeah, and uh, and action comics is really strong right now too. I, I would say that uh, that that's where the action is between those two books right now. It's it's solid. Yes, and you know it, it's interesting because the first issue of um, uh, Superman um, John Kent is also really good. Um, and is promising some interesting developments. So I, I think the Superman line in particular is really, really strong right now. Um, and of course, that that makes my heart sing because, you know, Superman is my dude. So anywho, uh, there you have it. After a quick break, we are going to be back with uh, rebirthing some characters. So stick around. Oh, it's going to be a hard rebirth as we're going to tackle some characters this week that we think need a revamp in... All right, Chris, so this was uh, sort of a last-minute addition to our stable um, of episodes, and we really uh, kind of were springing off of the, uh, the the whole spring thing, quite literally, and how, uh, you know, the weather's changing and nature's being reborn, and maybe we can kind of use that as a jumping-off point for revamping some characters. Uh, so, you know, thanks to Chris for a really, really good idea, because this was like a no-brainer as soon as I started thinking uh, about some of these characters that I really enjoy. Um, Chris, your first one, though, is not really a character, though, is it? Oh, they're a character, for sure. Um, now, listen, I, I, I gotta be honest, I've, I've never been the type of person, like, even as a sports fan, that calls for somebody's job, but I think that, um, that Marvel editorial really needs to have, like, a come-to-whatever-deity moment. Because the things that they are allowing to happen is really disgusting. Um, and the first one that comes to mind is the colorism that it takes with their characters of color. Uh, you have skin lightening. Um, you have uh, hair texture issues with characters of color. It's, it's just really gross. Um, and that's my main complaint. But, um, you know, kind of as an overall, like that's a mic- very micro issue, but it is a macro issue. It just seems that like characters seem to be stuck in a rut. And this goes all the way back to, you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum on this show, but the character of Peter Parker, like let this character grow, let this character progress and you refuse to do it. And I don't place this onus on, on anyone uh, of, of the particular writers. um, Even though I have my nitpicks on specific runs and specific creators, um, it's just like from the top down, you have these issues that continue to make it through that should have been caught in editorial. And it just seems like particularly the spider office, but even the X office. And, and I think when you love something, then you have to critique it or it doesn't get better or you're dishonest with yourself and you're dishonest with your fandom. And Marvel is my greatest fandom. I've loved Marvel comics. I've loved Marvel comics characters since I was seven years old. Um, and we have to do better. Um, I think that Marvel editorial has become complacent and they're interested in the almighty dollar being maybe it's being under the umbrella and under the protection of a, a mega corporation like Disney that they they kind of have stopped trying when it comes to editorial. Um, so it, it's just really disappointing the things that continue to get put out there. You had the fiasco with the immortal Hulk and Joe Bennett's awfulness. 
Um, that kind of, and, and if things, if Marvel editorial was doing their job, we wouldn't have to kind of hem and haw when we make recommendations for things like Immortal Hulk, when you have blatantly anti-Semitic things, or you have blatant colorism issues, like we could just wholeheartedly make a nerd commendation, um, or make a recommendation when it comes to things like this, but uh, they're asleep at the wheel and it's deeply troubling. Um, and then, you know, I'm going to beat a dead horse. But when you say that Peter Parker being in a long term committed relationship, whether that I, I don't care if that means marriage and I don't I'm, I'm happy either way. If he's with Mary Jane, with he's fully with he's full uh, or if he's with Felicia Hardy, I'm happy either way. But the fact that you can't let that man commit, even in his mid 20s, the fact that we have a character in their mid 20s, and they believe that there's like eternally single. Like, that's just ridiculous, and it's so regressive, and it's so goofy, and it's so out of touch. So my biggest bone to pick and the biggest change of heart that needs to come, whether that's new people in the role. Um, I Again, I don't like calling for people's jobs. I think that's gross, but I think they really need to listen to their audience and to their readers. And I will continue reading Marvel comics till the day that I die. There's not, it's not, it's not reached to a point where I'm like, you know, I'm done with Marvel. These are characters that I've loved and I have loved since I was a very small child, but they have to get their act together. Marvel editorial is the first big change that uh, needs, needs to happen. I think, uh, I don't think anything that you've said is exclusive to Marvel when it comes to the big two. I think we see a lot of this kind of problem happening at DC. I mean, we already men- already mentioned uh, at the top of the show um, that, uh, you know, Damien Wayne is biracial and he keeps kind of being colored a little too lightly. Um, so these kinds of issues, I think, are, um, you know, across the board. Um, I think what's interesting, though, is that DC has a leg up, at least when it comes to like character progression to a certain extent, because um, legacy is so important to the concept of DC Comics in particular. Um, so it's easy to say, OK, we can go ahead and we can take this character and we can progress him or her because, you know, this is a legacy character and you still have this other character over here. That's why it's so fun, for example, over in um, in The Flash that you have Wally West, who started as Kid Flash. He's grown up. He's married. He has a couple of kids himself, you know. And if you if you don't like that kind of character progression over there, still Barry Allen, you still have you know original flavor too. So I think progression is a little easier when you have uh, legacy baked into your storytelling the way you do. Um, and I see that they you know they tried some of that a little bit. Um, over at Marvel, I mean, you can you can kind of see the expansion of the Spider-Man family, the multiverse, and all that stuff, um, and and particularly Miles, which I think serves as a really you know um, a clear uh, way of saying okay, you can have you know classic more more teenage oriented Spider-Man stories here, and then more adult Spider-Man stories with Peter Parker, but they never quite pulled the trigger on on that decision, and I think that that's regrettable for sure. Now, Dave, this character is one of the first ones that popped into my brain when it came to reinvention, but I'm nowhere near close enough when it comes to actually reading the source material to make this suggestion. Yeah, you know, it is hilarious uh, how this is sort of going to be probably fairly divisive among uh, DC fans and our listeners, but I think uh, one of the characters that is in desperate need of a serious overhaul is Batman. And I'm not even talking about Bruce Wayne. I'm talking about Batman. Um, 
my my problem with Batman is that they've done you know they've told so many stories with the character at this point that in most Batman comics it doesn't really feel like Bruce Wayne is the protagonist. He is a um, a point of view character at best for an audience surrogate for us to see the weirdness of Gotham city. You know, Um, some of the best Batman books lately have been those one bad day, one shots, which are squarely focused on the villains, you know, and, and it's like, it's like Bruce Wayne. Batman has become the least interesting uh, character in his own book in a lot of ways. And that, that is sad. And I don't think that DC really is motivated to make any major changes to this character because he's, you know, remains a, a massive cash cow. Right. Um, but one of the reasons that a movie like the Batman, for example, really resonated with me is because Batman was, um, you know, very clearly the main character, right? Like his inner life and what's going on with him was front and center. Um, but that's a very early Batman story. And where we are in current continuity is he's, you know, he's moved all past, you know, insecurities and, and being imperfect and having to learn like, like we are at, at that sort of bat God level, like, you know, with enough prep time, he can do anything. And that's, that's something that fans throw around a lot, but it's fairly accurate when, you know, I love Chip Zdarsky, but in his, his recent run on Batman, Batman literally like fell out of a space station and like, you know, survived by you know re-entry into earth's atmosphere and and landed and lived and i'm like okay that's uh that's a little far guys um i don't think sadarsky would have daredevil do that for example right but there is this mythologizing around this character that he can do no wrong and he can do everything and he never fails and that makes for some really boring storytelling so my revamp would be to get rid of Bruce Wayne and, and let somebody else be Batman, at least for a while. And yeah, I know we've done this kind of before. I know we, you know, we did the whole post-Final Crisis thing where Dick Grayson was Batman. But Dick Grayson has been in the game so long and is so good at what he does that uh, that didn't feel that different. You know, the inversion of the relationship between Batman and Robin was really the most interesting thing to come out of that. And I really don't think Dick Grayson needs Batman. You know, like he's a great character as Nightwing on his own. He doesn't need to graduate to being Batman, if, if you get my meaning. Um, but having somebody, you know, younger, uh, who's, you know, deeply affected by the loss of Bruce Wayne, he's presumed dead or whatever, and is trying to step up and is, you know, struggling and, and goes through a lot of these growing pains of trying to become, you know, scary for criminals and, 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 you know, can't quite live up to the perfection of Bruce Wayne. And that that's interesting conflict. And so I, I wish they would go ahead and just say, let somebody else be Batman for a little while. And, you know, I have a, I have a real good candidate in mind. I think if you're going to look at the Bat family, the natural place to go is Tim Drake, uh, who is, you know, um, Gonna would be a much younger Batman for one. For two, is just like losing his his solo book and it seems very directionless considering there's two Robins right now. And you could have a lot of fun with a Batman and Robin book where you have Damien as his Robin, but Damien thinks that Tim is unworthy of being Batman. And there's just there's there's a lot of interesting character conflict and stuff built in that we're just lacking right now. I think with Bruce Wayne. Um, so I think the character just needs a break. You know, even if it's just like two, three years or something and just do something completely different once. And this is very much from an outsider's perspective. I'm currently reading Taylor's Nightwing 
Um, I had to skip over some stuff because there were some creators attached that I was like, I am not interested in reading their take on, on Nightwing. So I, I finally bit the bullet and jumped straight to the Taylor run. I'm greatly enjoying it. Uh, no surprise there. Um, do you think the extensive Bat family plays a hindrance to Bruce? I actually don't think so. I, I think that that playing, the, that's another thing that is usually a problem with Bruce Wayne is that you have a lot of writers that come into the book and they immediately assume Batman is a, is a you know dick to all of his family members and has to be a loner and doesn't want to work with anybody. And that's not really the essence of Batman for the most part. You know, I mean, we've gone through those phases with the character. But he has, you know, this found family he's built around himself and not using them in storytelling and, you know, having having him push them all away. There's this cyclical storytelling thing in Bruce Wayne, like the only flaw that writers can find in him is that he um, wants to go at it alone and pushes people away that he loves. And then he learns the lesson by the end of a run that he shouldn't do that. And then the next writer comes in and starts the cycle again. It's like. Yeah, it's, it's like that's the only story they, they can tell with him, it feels like. And so, um, no, I don't think the Bat family is a hindrance. I think uh, the, the Bat family needs to be fully integrated, kind of like what they're doing over, you know, with Superman right now. It's a, it's a natural fit that he plays off of these other characters that look up to him and wear the same crest as him, you know? So, um, yeah, I just, I just, man, Bruce needs a break. All right, Chris, so uh, your next one, I'm kind of shocked to see on the list, considering that this is one of your all-time favorite characters. I'm going after the German Catholic. What do you know? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, like I said in my previous bit, like when you love something, you have to be honest with it. Um, And the current trajectory of Nightcrawler has been deeply troubling, and I've been sounding this trumpet for the past couple of years. and I think that the current the the current writing team is just they're they're not I think they're misunderstanding the character. Um and so like with with uh X-Men number seven and you had this kind of big spiritual rhetorical question on like the meaning of a soul and what it means to be a spiritual or religious individual in the advent of um, resurrection. And so you have, you know, a character like Nightcrawler going through this kind of spiritual crisis, if you will. Um, And the pivot towards creating a religion and uh, a code of morality for this newfound paradise not to mention a policing state has been deeply troubling. And I think it's, I think it's a, it's a gross misunderstanding of the character at their core. Um, and I think it, it, there are a lot of, this is just like a kind of peripheral observation that I've made is there are a lot of comic writers out there who have struggled with their own spiritual beliefs and, if you want to go to the step of agnosticism or atheism. Um, and sometimes that's executed nice and well, and sometimes it, it, it is found lacking. Um, and so I think the biggest criticism outside of, and, and I know that X comics are a difficult um, thing for you to maneuver, but I'll, I'll give you the long and the short of it. 
during um, that first solo series, um, Way of X, there's a there's a black female character that's introduced to have been traumatized and abused and her family murdered by Fabian Cortez, a white European character. And Nightcrawler forces her to forgive her abuser. And, you know, it, it's deeply troubling, you know, that in the interest of the spiritual well-being of the mutant people, that it has to be the victim that has to be the bigger person and the better person. Um, and that's it, it was deeply it was deeply troubling read for me and for my favorite character um, in X books and probably even Marvel comics to be attached to that as to be the person kind of forcing the victim to be forgiving and be the bigger person. It was a deeply troubling read for me. And so I think when you love something, you have to be honest with it. And I think it's just a misunderstanding of the character. And so, you know, in the advent of mutant paradise and a real chance for mutant kind to make their stamp and stop running for their lives, Nightcrawler has come across as, for all intents and purposes, a stick in the mud as like, well, everyone else is enjoying their newfound life. He's like, well, what about religion? And what about, you know, doing the right thing? And what about common petty theft and all this stuff? And it's just not an enjoyable read. Um, I think my overall read of the character, and I've, I've gone throughout my own kind of spiritual journey in, in my life. But I think the overall read that I have for the character and what draws me to him is him doing the right thing. And that's that's not dependable upon any kind of ideology or, or faith or religion. Um, and so I, I really think that Kurt really needs to kind of go through a reinvention. Um, some of the later writing has been stronger than at the onset. It's just kind of hard to deal with the the lost of it all. This the name of the character um, is lost, and that it, it's it's kind of it's kind of it sucks to be kind of kind of stuck with something like that. Um, and so it just seems really kind of regressive to just and and you can be religious whatever you want to, but you can't be a stick in the mud and kind of like limiting what other people are doing based on what your own personal beliefs are. And, you know, to your credit, that's what I appreciate about our friendship and your belief system is you're not like being the fun police, so to speak. So I, I, I need, I need kind of a reinvention uh, on, on my guy, Kurt Wagner. I think, uh, I think, you know, what, what you're talking about is um, a, a symptom of a much larger um, issue I think in in fiction in general is that it it appears difficult for people to um, write um, people of religion in a positive light. Um, it's that that I think is is you know it's one of my biggest criticisms of for example Stephen King who's up there is one of my all time favorite writers. But faith is a huge blind spot in his writing. You better believe that if a preacher shows up in one of his stories, he's a bad guy not going to be a good guy right and you know we have to deal with the with the reality that there are people like that you know there are people who use uh faith as a weapon and it's it's very common uh i think we see it a lot 
uh, in recent years. And it is, um, it, it's, as a person of faith to me, personally, that's offensive. But I understand that, you know, a writer's instinct is naturally to comment on this. Um, but at the same time, um, I, I think we're lacking a balance and that there are plenty of people that, that have a strong faith uh, and at the same time are not, uh, you know, exhibiting these these negative traits um, that are sort of being hoisted upon them uh, by uh, let's let's say a a large but still vocal minority. I guess is the best way to put it. So um, there are plenty of people that I uh, encounter, interact with on social media and the like, where I say, you know, you 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 give my you know you give my faith a bad name with that kind of behavior. Um, and I think that's something that we see a lot, and that gets transplanted into fiction um, frequently. It's a problem. I mean, it, it's undeniably a problem. I would like to see um, a writer who maybe has um, a Catholic background to take a crack at writing a Nightcrawler book. Um, he is ostensibly supposed to be one of the good guys, right? So it would be nice to see... Um, you know, the, the positive values that come from that particular institution a little stretched more in him. Um, and I think there is fertile ground even for, um, you know, f- for him to struggle with some of the more negative aspects of that and, and to try to make sense of that. I think that's fertile ground for good storytelling much more than what you have described as happening in the X-Books currently. So I think th- I think there's room to grow absolutely in the portrayal of Nightwing, uh, Nightcrawler then. Yeah, and I don't want it to come across like he's an outright villain. It's just it's it's a very holier than thou and a very much thumbing your nose at anyone who kind of comes across as differently. And I think that's that's equally as damaging a characterization. Absolutely. All right, Dave, I'm very interested to your second one because my only exposure to character is the god awful Titans HBO Max series, who I only watch only watch for Anna Diop, who is perfect and ineffable, and I hope she does all the things. And that's the only reason I come back to this. You know, there's a rumor going around that there's going to be a Starfire miniseries uh, being made on HBO Max. And I really hope they keep that particular casting because she's fantastic. Um, so let's talk about Hawk and Dove for a second, which uh, that, that's a pretty complex um, uh, situation. Uh, just for people that are not super familiar with the characters, um uh, I'm going to go ahead and just go directly to the DC.com website. I looked up the characters and I'm just going to kind of go ahead and and talk about the uh, basics of the character by reading this to our listeners. And then we can dig into the characters a little bit. So according to DCComics.com, the universe's duality is made manifest in the form of two champions, one for war and one for peace, empowered by the lords of order and chaos. The cosmic forces that maintain balance in the universe work in strange and unexpected ways. Years ago, the Lords of Chaos and Order gifted brothers Hank and Don Hall with superpowers, transforming them into the superhero team Hawk and Dove, the avatars for the forces of war and peace. Hank became Hawk, a red and white clad superhero defined by anger and aggression, while Don, known for his compassion and level-headedness, became Dove, who wore a mirroring blue and white costume. Hank's shoot-first, ask-questions-later attitude, coupled with his unwillingness to compromise and mile-wide stubborn streak, made him a difficult person to work with for just about everyone but his brother. And even Don had his limits, while Don's eagerness to see compromise and aversion to fighting often made him reluctant to act. 
Tragically, the brothers' partnership was cut short when Don was killed during the catastrophic events of the Crisis of Infinite Earths. College student Don Granger was chosen by the Lords uh, to replace him. Over time, Hank accepted Don as a fitting successor to his brother. Don's level head, along with her willingness to see reason and compromise, make her the perfect counterpoint to Hank's hair-trigger rage and stubbornness. But her measured manner should never be mistaken for weakness. Even though she may be more careful with her power than her partner is, she's anything but a pushover. Uh, character facts are listed. Uh, there's the powers, enhanced strength, superhuman agility, healing factor, body density, flight, empathy, and danger sense. Um, so I think that I have never read a really good Hawk and Duff story. You know, like I love the characters and I love the concept of these two completely like opposite individuals having to work together. And at the same time, I have never come across a really good Hawk and Dove story. They'll pop up here and there, like you mentioned in the Titan series, for example. Uh, they'll pop up here and there in storytelling. But every time that I read any story where they appear, they just as quickly disappear. Um, and uh, like I was reading um, a JSA, an old JSA book, and there was suddenly, you know, uh, Dawn Granger was there, but she had been killed before that story. But she was back, but really she wasn't back, and she disappeared at the end. And it's like... There's these two really cool characters that have been, have been around since the late 60s, and nobody's ever really, like, just nailed them, it feels like to me. And maybe I'm missing a story, maybe our listeners can point me in the right direction, but he, here's my take. I think it would be absolutely awesome to just go ahead and go full 80s buddy action comedy with these characters right because that's like the essence of like you know your lethal weapons and your 48 hours and all that you know you have the you have two completely mismatched people who get stuck together and have to you know solve a crime together or whatever and and those movies are a lot of fun because you get to enjoy these people not liking each other and then growing to respect each other and and even then when they respect each other having to constantly deal with the others um you know, differences, right? So if you lean really into that, you know, put a dash of comedy in there and a, and a whole lot of action and a big central mystery, I think you have the recipe for a really, really cool story. That's why I really like, you know, Dawn uh, over Dawn. Uh, I don't think that them being brothers is necessarily the best way to go. It would be really cool to just reset with them. You know, they both get their, their you know, powers at the same time um, and they are just, you know, thrown into this partnership without even knowing each other or anything. I think if you take this 80s buddy action comedy approach to that, I think that this could be like just a fantastic uh, book to read. But for some reason, these characters just never quite hit, even though I really love the base concept of these complete opposites being stuck together. Um, not to be a broken record, but to be a broken record, the book you're looking for is Green Lanterns <laughs> with Jessica Cruz and Simon Boss. Um, and it's, yeah, and, that, and that, you know, it's that, funny you say that, Chris, because that was that was I've, I've read the first few issues of that. And that was my first take is this is a, this is a really yeah. cool dynamic. Why is this not Hawk and Dove? Why didn't they do something yeah. like that with Hawk and Dove? You know, because it's it's built into the core concept and yet they, they don't seem to hit on it. And again, maybe I'm missing a book, but, you know, I've not come across one yet where they really hit this. Yeah, that's the only observation that I have is, and God, now it makes me want to reread that. Uh, just like parallel, uh, like polar opposites, you know, someone who suffers from all the anxieties in the world, who wants to completely isolate herself. And then you have this testosterone fueled gearhead who's been discriminated against because of his Muslim heritage. 
um, or his Muslim faith and, and his uh, Middle Eastern heritage. Um, and, you know, the, the, the cards are all stacked against them for different reasons, and they have completely different personalities. But then that coming together um, is just truly poetic and truly magical. Um, and and what's, what's really great about that run, and um, I'm hijacking the segment, I'm sorry, but like it shifts creative teams like two or three times and it just continues to work. Yeah, yeah, and, and see that that sort of approach to storytelling, you know, this whole opposites being thrown together is just really, really cool. But I've never seen it fully come to fruition with these two characters. All right, Chris, your final revamp. What have you got? Okay, so um, similar to the Batman thing, I'm, I've never read an Iron Man solo comic. Um, if you could win me over, all the more power to you. But Every time that I see Iron Man Tony Stark pop up in ancillary books, it comes across, and this is no shade towards the writer, This comes across, it comes across as a karaoke version of Robert Downey Jr. And that's kind of the blessing and the curse of Robert Downey Jr. And what he did for the Marvel Cinematic Universe is he was so perfect in that role and so great and so admired in that role. Everything else, even in a different medium like comic books, it kind of pales in comparison. And I kind of think the whole shtick of... You know, I'm so rich, I can buy all the tech. It's it's kind of gotten old, and it's not really the flex that they think it is. So I think I think Iron Man needs... I don't know if he needs... I don't know that he needs, like, a grounded thing. I'm not saying that you have to strip him of all his tech and stuff. But I think we're missing kind of like... Maybe this is the psychology nerd in me. I think we need, like a humanistic approach of him. Like he just comes across as this masquerading insecure guy who kind of overcompensates with tech and money and stuff. And there, there are, there are kind of appearances where he's done well. And maybe this is just my bias at play because I'm very much the Peter Parker, um, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man by Tom Taylor has one of my all time favorite panels of you know tony saying well aren't you a genius and peter says not when it comes to money he said oh, that doesn't make sense he's like because i don't value money and so maybe that's my bias coming to play um but i would like to see kind of like a human approach towards tony and because the whole charade of money and again please for the love of god don't strip him of all his fortune and like do that but like you can still keep him in that role and, and make him more approachable as a character because the shtick is getting old. <laughs> it's really interesting that you said that because I have never really enjoyed an Iron Man book yet. I keep dipping my toe in um, and it never quite hums for me either. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on what the, exactly the problem is because I've enjoyed Batman, you know, for example, for a really, really long time. I'm not sure what the issue is here either, but I do know that something something different's going to have to happen um, to, to this character at some point. I'm still waiting to see an approach to him that really clicks with me. And, you know, I think we have to acknowledge that the MCU version uh, works completely on the back of um, Robert Downey Jr.'s natural charm, right? I mean, that's, that's why it works. Um, so it, it, I, that charm is obviously missing on the page. So so it's not quite clicking, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, 
yeah, how how to do something different with Tony Stark is a is a seriously interesting question, um, especially considering that there is, I think, currently there's sort of a swelling antagonism, I think, towards um, the super rich and billionaires and all that. Um, I know, I know, there's a, a lot of dislike being, you know, thrown towards Elon Musk and his actions on Twitter and all that, for example. Um, so, may, which is totally warranted. Um, which you know is is interesting, and maybe that is what needs to happen. Maybe you know it would be an interesting, an interesting situation to have him have Iron Man sort of bump up against, um, you know, public dislike of billionaires, uh, realizing. Uh, the far-reaching consequences of some of his actions and dealing a little bit with sort of the modern um, situation of what does it mean to be a billionaire, you know? Uh, may- maybe there's some some storytelling there that would be interesting. But so far, yeah, w- when it comes to Iron Man, nothing's really clicked with me either, so I know where you're coming from. Now, listen, if uh, as you said, if our listeners have found a good Iron Man run and you'd like to recommend it, like, p- please feel free. Um, it's just like a never character that I've sought out be like, ah, a new Iron Man one. That's the one that I've got to run to the, the LCS for, or run to comiXology for, um, you know, money has never been something I valued opulence is never something that I've been drawn to for God's sake. We're teachers. Um, <laughs> um, so, um, for me, like I always love when he, I do like when he plays off characters like Steve Rogers or um, I'm enjoying a good deal. Him, him kind of going back and forth with Felicia Hardy and the iron cat series. I've read a little bit of that. Um, it's just, it's kind of, but at the same time, it's like, I like playing kind of throwback songs that I like on my Spotify playlist because I remember liking those songs, but there's no real progression. And to beat that old drum is like, there's no real growth from that. It's kind of almost like the same trappings when he argues with Steve. Yeah, yeah, uh, he seems to work best when he is uh, not as, when he's not solo. Like he works better in team books and the like, um, where he gets to bounce off of other people. Yeah, I, I, that's totally accurate. Okay, now you were very enthusiastic when I kind of threw this idea your way, and now I see why. <sighs> so, just do me a favor and be kind, okay? <laughs> Just be kind today. There's nothing more that I can ask for in this one. Be careful. Be careful. I finished my brew. Okay. So I'm ob- obviously I was in the, um, you know, I was a comic book reader in the 90s. And I, I will freely profess to enjoying a whole bunch of stuff from the 90s that, in, um, you know, in hindsight might not be the greatest storytelling of all time. And yet at the same time, it's undeniable that I enjoyed it. Um, can't be changed. It's just who I am. And one of the things that I really enjoyed, for example, was the death of and return of Superman storyline, which people looking back today say, well, that wasn't a very good storyline. Um, but man, when you were a kid in the nineties, it hummed, it, it was, it was awesome. You know, you get presented with these four alternatives and which one's the real Superman, none of them, but each one was an interesting character in their own right. That's just really, really good stuff. Um, and and had you know far-reaching consequences. All those characters, to some extent or another, are still around. So um, there was some good stuff in the '90s in my book. What was undeniably not good, although it featured some good stories and a very strong start, was the Clone Saga. And I will admit, um, having read a lot of um, 
Spider-Man in the '90s, leading up to the Clone Saga, because you know they were starting to you know make their comeback in Germany. A little bit comic books were, and Spider-Man was one of the first things on the Marvel side that was hitting the shelf monthly. Um, I read a lot, you know, Maximum Carnage and all that stuff. And it, even as a kid, it was very apparent to me that the Spider-Man books had gotten a little dark, uh, pretty darn violent, and that. Peter Parker had been really through the ringer and was turning into kind of a, a downer, a jerk, a, um, just a really mess, a, just a mess of a character, right? I mean, we're talking about a guy who was running around and saying he's not Peter Parker anymore. He's just a spider, you know, like it was it was getting, you know, very far removed from what made Spider-Man a really cool character. And then the Clone Saga started and you suddenly were presented with this alternative. And this was very consciously done by the writers at the time, obviously, you know, in Ben Riley, the clone, uh, being very much what Spider-Man had been before all these uh, darkening stories, um, you know, uh, clever, funny, very smart. Um, and then, you know, added some new wrinkles to the whole thing with like a, a huge reliance on technology that was not really in, in Peter's repertoire at the time, you know, inventing new kinds of webbing and stuff and and trying new technological innovations. And I really enjoyed because of that, uh, Ben Riley's a character who was sort of a breath of fresh air. Um, you know, I, I was never behind the idea of making him, you know, the one true Spider-Man or something. Um and obviously that didn't stick and they went back to Peter Parker. They killed off Ben Riley. Um, and I liked the Ben Riley character for what he was. He, you know, ostensibly was created to be what Peter Parker couldn't be, right? So at the time, Peter Parker was married and they just were struggling to get him out of the marriage. Um, they couldn't kill off Mary Jane because then he'd be a widower and that ages him. And you don't want an, you know, aged Peter Parker. And you couldn't divorce him because then he's divorced Peter Parker. And that makes him feel older too. So they were struggling to get him out of this marriage. And instead of getting Peter Parker out of the marriage, they decided to create a different character to be what Peter Parker couldn't be, um, which was, you know, swinging single. Um, and of course, now in the meantime, they they you know reversed course, and then they did one more day, which is of course one of the most acclaimed stories in comic books ever, and everybody loved it. And now and now Peter's single again, and you know editorial is very clear that he's not getting back together and getting remarried with Mary Jane, and you know blah 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 yada yada. It's a whole thing. But what I find fascinating in all of this is the, is the Ben Riley of it all, which you know he he gets to come back, and first he's a bad guy, he's the new jackal. Um, and then, you know, they do a Scarlet Spider series where he's just kind of uh, a dick, I guess. Um, and I didn't really, that didn't really click with me at all. And now they've made him a, a different villain yet again. So we went from, from villain to anti-hero, I guess, to villain yet again. And, and none of this rings true to me as a, as a reader of Spider-Man in the 90s and as a fan of the character. None of this rings particularly true to me. So I think I think Ben of all people is in desperate need of a revamp. Um and to me the natural place to go would be uh to do with him what you can't do with Peter Parker, right? I mean that was the whole genesis of of this character was we need a character that can be what Peter Parker cannot be. At the time, it was unmarried and single. Now it's completely inverted, right? I mean, now Peter Parker is single. They've they've pulled the the trigger on that, and uh, now he can never be married. So why not go there with with Ben Riley? You know, like rehabilitate the character, 
um, give him his, you know, his own city away from Peter and, you know, let him get married to Janine and have a kid and, and do these stories that people have a hunger for in, in the form of Spider-Man stories, but that editorial is not re- really willing to uh, provide um, when it comes to Peter Parker. So you can have your cake and you can have, you can eat it too. You know, you can have the, the Spider-Man book that continues as it is. And you can have the, the Scarlet Spider, Ben Riley, whatever book over here that presents some of the scenarios of what it would be like if uh, Peter Parker were married and have a kid, because the characters ostensibly are very similar. Now they have now had years of um, different experiences. And so that's another thing that any, you know, Ben Riley stories really should lean into. They are not the same person anymore. You know, I mean, uh, ben Riley was on the road even before he came came back. He was on the road for like five years and had all these unique experiences. Yet for some reason, every time a writer picks up their pen, they either, they just kind of write Ben Riley as like this is just Peter Parker. Um, but the two have had very different experiences, and because of that, should be different characters. Um, so to me, um, you know, Ben Riley is a character that still has potential, uh, that still has a place by fulfilling his original purpose to be what Peter Parker cannot be. Uh, and a writer should definitely, you know, lean into that and lean into um, the notion that him and Peter have been separate individuals for so long now that they are different people. And I think if you do that, you can have a really interesting addition to the to the Spider-Man canon. Um, right now, the character feels like a waste. I think um, the way that Dark Web ended, I'm very intrigued by because there's so much that was left unresolved. I think you place him in custody in limbo. Um, there's still so much left to do with that character, left to do with the stolen memories. There wasn't really a resolution between himself and Peter like there was with Jean Grey and Madeline Pryor. So I still think that there's meat left on that bone to the nth degree because I, I'm, I'm waiting for the team-up book where they actually go take it to the real villain of the story, the Beyond Corporation. Um, I feel like for for better or for worse, the whole Beyond thing was kind of truncated to make room for the Wells run, which I thoroughly enjoyed and have no bones about. Um, probably my favorite Spider-Man book that I've read in recent years. Um but I, I'm still waiting for that team up book, and I think I think the 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 kind of like the runway is still there for them to go team up and take out the Beyond Corporation. Um, that pink curl, that pink haired pixie cut girl, whatever her name is, Maxine Power, I think. Um, I think her comeuppance is is nigh. Um, so I'm I'm totally here for it. Um, and you know I've made jokes and I tease because I care. But yeah, I'm 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 here for it. I the character really never resonated with me. Maybe that's because I was late to the party and I read everything um kind of oh in syndication, if you will, if that makes sense. Um and so for me it came across as like a karaoke version of Peter Parker with with bad uh with bad bleach blonde highlights. Um and so there wasn't really kind of any uniqueness to the character for me. Um and so I, I see that potential now. I'm, I I love the Chasm suit. I think it looks great. Yes, it's the Baja Blast Spider-Man, but I like Baja Blast. Um, but so I'm really excited to see where the character goes from here. Um, 
he kind of has that Kane quality to him. And I still say that Kane is the most compelling clone of the entire thing. Like that was my biggest observation is like, why are we not having more Kane? Like, it's great to have like a perfect clone copy of Peter. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. What about the effed up one? That's the interesting one. What about Frankenstein's monster of the clones? What happens when it goes bad? Um, oh man, he was just to me like when you re- read the original Clone Saga, he's just you know Edge Lord Spider Man. Like I had I had no connection with him during the '90s whatsoever. He he was easily one of the most boring things until uh, you know J.M. Demetrius actually did something with him in one of those Lost Year stories. Then it was a little he became a little more interesting. But as like in the mainline story. He was just like, oh, there's this guy that shows up and, and kills people and then disappears again. Uh, mystery mystery villain number 587, you know. So um, he's one of the characters that, you know, they made chicken soup with, you know, chicken, you know what, uh, because in the initial clone saga. Well, that's what JMD, think, that's what JMD does best. Yeah, but in, in the initial clone saga, I don't think it was a very interesting character. But once they made him Scarlet Spider and played around with the character, I think he became significantly more interesting. But yeah, the, an, an, an unlikely alliance, if you will, here. But yeah, I'm I'm here for it. I'm, I'm excited to see where Ben goes. I I read the uh, I think I read the first issue of of Janine's little mini series, and I I liked it. I think it was fun. Um, her powers are really unique and really interesting. I don't know how I feel about like the whole Halloweenification of it, um, but but the the like changing masks and changing personalities and and kind of get ups is is really unique and kind of interesting. So. Um, maybe we'll see where where we end up after Janine Solo. All righty, folks, there you have it. Who uh, would you uh, want to revamp at both DC or Marvel? Drop us uh, a message on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. Stick around because after a quick break, we're going to be back with some nerd commendations. Ladies and gentle people, we've got the media that we are consuming that we want to pass on to you. We call it... Chris, what are you commending this week? So I'm going back into the archives. Um, I I was kind of really contemplating for a while what was going to nerd commend this week but i realized that i've spoken about it but i don't think i've ever fully nerd commended and loyal listeners feel free to correct me but i'm fully nerd commending the 2012 animated series teenage mutant ninja turtles this is this is a series that's near and dear to my heart if for no other reason that my kids kind of grew up and and kind of autonomously fell in love with the turtles because of this and so like it was a bonding experience that we had myself with the 87 series and then, you know, they're finding this new generation. And I've said this ad nauseum on this show before, but like the thing I love most about the Turtles property is that it is willing to evolve and willing to reinvent itself. And sometimes it works um, and sometimes it doesn't. Next mutation. I still got love for Venus de Milo. Um, but this this series is so great. It brings back um, legendary voice actor Rob Paulson, who's voicing a different turtle in Donatello. And then kind of like the lovesick puppy of it all is really fun with Donatello. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of what they did with April here, but I mean, like Mae Whitman, you'd be hard pressed to find like a more iconic voice actress than Mae Whitman. Um, 
But I, I love this cast. Jason Biggs starts as Leo, and then Seth Green, like nerd icon, Seth Green takes over as Leonardo. Um, you got Sean Astin here. Greg Sipes, though, is really the bee's knees. Like, we need to give all the flowers, buy out the floral shop for for Greg Sipes as a voice actor. I mean, like, my kids are huge fans of Teen Titans Go, and and what he's able the fun he's able to have with Beast Boy and with Michelangelo here is truly remarkable. Um, Ice Cream Kitty, I mean, come on! Like this, this series is really wild and ambitious in that everybody gets mutagen. You have a freaking Ice Cream Kitty, you have a muted, a mutated cat with ice cream. I mean, like, come on! It's just really ambitious. It's really out there, like the crank. The Krang invasion is really a smart, old school sci-fi kind of storyline to go with. Shredder's really menacing here. So there's just so much to love. It's currently streaming on Netflix. So go turn it on. Have fun with your kids. It's, it's just a really, really great series. And I highly recommend it. I have still not watched this. Um, I'm going to freely admit I'm a big TMNT fan, but you know, finding finding time even to to back up and watch some of these has been uh, has been difficult. But based on your recommendation and the fact that I'm I need something to to put on in the background and listen to a little bit while I'm doing stuff, I think I might have to give this one a shot. Absolutely, that. Now, Dave, you have been swooning, almost insufferable for the past few days. So so go ahead. This is your time. <laughs> So I've been uh, I've had some issues finding time to to play video games, and I've been looking for a way to to get back into things. Uh, and what I needed was something that was a little more portable because sitting in front of a TV and playing when you have a toddler running around the house is basically impossible. Um, and after some research, I decided to to pull the trigger and purchase a uh, a Steam Deck. Um, so for uh, our listeners who are maybe not familiar with this thing. Um, Steam is a uh, an online platform for PC games, and Valve, which uh, runs that whole platform, Steam is all them. Uh, they created a portable uh, gaming PC. Basically, it looks a little bit like a Nintendo Switch. It's a little larger, um, and it uh, links up with uh, your Steam library, and you can play many of the games on the go. It's absolutely incredible how much power is under the hood for this thing. Um, one of the first things that I did is I booted up the PC version of Horizon Zero Dawn, which is a PlayStation 4 game. And uh, this uh, this machine handled it like a pro. I had absolutely no graphical glitches, no hitching, no frame drops. Uh, absolutely incredible. It looked totally beautiful on this portable device. Now, I am going to wholeheartedly recommend this for people who uh, want to be able to play some of these more advanced games on the go, but I do want to be very clear that there are some caveats here. The first is that this is a first-generation machine, um, and because of that, you are going to run into uh, a few issues here and there that you kind of have to figure out because um, Valve themselves are still figuring things out. Um, so one of the first things I ran into is that there's a standing um, incompatibility between um, the Steam Deck and Netgear uh, Wi-Fi routers. So uh, after some consideration and the fact that my Wi-Fi router was old anyways, I went ahead and upgraded to an Asus um, Wi-Fi router. Um, and that has eliminated any Wi-Fi issues that I had. Um, 
so you you are going to run into little things like that uh it also bears noting that for a handheld this has about as much power under the hood as you can imagine um and so it does have fans and when you're playing something that is uh very demanding on the machine uh you are going to hear that jet engine take off a few times so it's not exactly the most quiet machine that you'll ever play it's uh not as quiet as something like the nintendo switch for example uh, but it is significantly more powerful and it's sort of a trade-off uh that you have to deal with other than that though i have to say that i've not run into any real major issues with it it runs beautifully um, it can play a whole bunch of games. I guess the only other thing to note is that they're still in like a testing phase and figuring out which games, and there are so many games available on PC, which games work perfectly and which games might have, you know, a problem here or there because, you know, you can't perfectly map, you know, keyboard mouse controls to something that's basically, you know, like a Nintendo Switch. Um, so you will have uh, to check like compatibility, you know, each game listing basically tells you if it's, perfect if it's playable or if it has any kind of major glitches or if they haven't been able to test it yet they just haven't gotten to the game yet now in the pro column i will also say that this thing is an emulation powerhouse so if you are into emu the emulation scene i think the sucker can can emulate even like playstation 3 and xbox 360 games which is absolutely mind-boggling to consider um so, for, uh, you know, on the emulation side, it's really, really strong as well. Um, I just, I really, really like this machine. I'm looking forward to seeing in a couple of years them, you know, iterating on it and doing something that maybe has a little more power under the hood and is a little more quiet. Um, but I have had very, very few uh, complaints with this machine. It is, it is an absolute joy. And, and tonight, after uh, a long day, I'm probably going to be sitting back on the couch or on my bed and i'm going to get out the steam deck and you know hit up another game i went straight for open world stuff i got skyrim on this thing i got the witcher 3 uh on this thing um and uh the new um uh the first of these uh star wars games that they did what is it called again chris you remember the uh are you doing are you talking about um the jedi um survivor whatever Survivor is the new one. I yeah, this, so the, so the Fallen first... Order. Fallen Order. Fallen Order. Fall, yeah, Fallen Order was on sale on Steam for like $5.99 during the spring sale. So I've got that, that on there too. And all of those games are supposed to run flawlessly on the Steam Deck. So uh, it's an absolute powerhouse. Uh, it, it looks gorgeous. Works very, very well. Um, is a little more expensive, obviously, than uh, something like the Nintendo Switch. The base model is $3.99. Um, and I would highly recommend getting some extra storage. It does take uh, micro SD cards because, you know, modern games are very large. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's an absolute delight. And I wholeheartedly recommend the Steam Deck. Now, we've talked a lot off camera about this, Dave. Um, just a peek behind the curtain, if you will. I'm a MacBook user. And so PC gaming has never been one of my go-to things. Um so if I were to buy one of these, would it be worthwhile playing exclusively on the Steam Deck since I don't play on PC? I think so. I think there are enough games that, especially, you know, more modern stuff that runs absolutely flawlessly on here. And if you're willing to, um, if you're willing to learn a little bit, right, uh, and I've, you know, I've built, I've built my own gaming PC and everything, so I'm, I'm very much into that kind of scene, Um 
you know, they there's like uh, things you can do to try to get games to run on there that don't aren't officially supported yet. Um, there's a you know a experimental proton that you can run games through, and sometimes that'll work. Uh, there's ways to try to get games from the Epic Store to run on it, or from uh, GOG, good old games. I th- I think if you're willing to put in a little work and and learn a little bit, uh, the sky's the limit with this machine. I will also say uh, that game streaming works on it. So if you have like an Xbox One uh, and you want to play games that are on your Xbox One on your Steam Deck, you can do game streaming. So technically it's running on your Xbox, but you, you're you playing it with your Steam Deck, um, which is also really, really cool. So uh, that, that opens up even playing games from your Xbox anywhere in your house on the Steam Deck. Um, so yeah, I, I think this thing is, is totally worth the price of admission. I have, I have no regrets. All righty, folks, there you have it. Uh, that was episode 147 of the Nerd Byword Podcast. If you like what you just heard, please get on your favorite podcasting platform. Drop us a rating, a review, and subscribe so you never miss another episode. We are available wherever podcasts can be found, including our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to hit us up. That was a crappy one. And also hit us up on social media at Nerd by Word on Twitter and Instagram or individually that Nerd David, that Nerd Chris. Slide into the link in our bio if you want some cool merch, you want to talk to us on the Discord. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd by Word is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.